Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you very much for being here. We are phenomenally proud of our relationship with Cambridge University and the series that they programme here, which is programmed by Mandy Garner, who runs the Festival of Ideas there. We are particularly pleased today to have a, a friend of the festival, a dear friend of the festival, who has supported us and engaged with us for many years in her previous role as Director General of the National Trust. She's just published this, her first book, The Fight for Beauty, which, in this context, set in this wonderful green field where you can walk out of that door, look up, and see all around you the sublime majesty of Wales and also England. Uh, it's... It's a wonderful treat to be able to share this book with you now. Please give a very warm welcome to Fiona Reynolds. Thanks very much. Beauty. It's a word we all use. It's a word we all recognise. It's a word we all experience to describe the places we love, to describe the experiences that touch our heart. Whether it's this kind of wonderful landscape, whether it's the beauty of wildlife, or our incredible cultural heritage. Or whether, as Peter just said, it's the landscape we're in at this moment. These are experiences that we know matter. They make our lives worth living. But beauty is not a word that you would hear politicians make today. They don't speak about beauty. In fact, they're almost embarrassed to speak about beauty. It's as if there's an awkwardness, a kind of reluctance, as if it's slightly soft, romantic, sentimental. Not a word that is useful. And even conservationists, when we talk about beauty, we've reduced it today to management speak. Words like ecosystem services, natural capital, sustainable development, words that we don't really know what they mean. And if we do, they don't really touch our hearts. So there's a bit of a vacuum when it comes to thinking about something which is such an urgent human need. But it wasn't always like that. Once beauty counted, it shaped our lives, shaped public policy, was something we were proud of, we championed, we sought to achieve. And indeed, we know that beauty is deep in our soul. If you think back to the very earliest writers, Chaucer, talking about the spring and the beauty of April that long in folk to go on pilgrimages, Shakespeare conjuring up the forest of Arden or the bleak hills of Scotland's Macbeth, incredible medieval churches with their beautiful carved stone, whether it's the gargoyles or the beautiful creatures or here the simplicity of a Saxon church. In poetry, in literature, we have all really seen and enjoyed the word and the delight of beauty. It's been a source of debate throughout history, particularly during the Enlightenment. Burke's great treatise of 1757 on the sublime and the beautiful. The sublime being that which invoked terror, that which invoked a fear, 
This Thomas Smith's engraving of Borrowdale reminds us of the language of Daniel Defoe, who said, Westmoreland is a country eminent only in being the wildest, most barren and frightful of any that I have passed over in England, or even in Wales. <laughs> and so that sense of terror was contrasted with the beauty stimulated by love. And that beauty, for many years, was a beauty inspired by the notion of Arcadia, the great writers of ancient Greece, and indeed inspired young men to leave England in search of Arcadia on the grand tour, in search of this definition of beauty. This is Poussin's Et in Arcadia Ego, a beauty found in Italy with this wonderful composition of decay and construction with artfully placed trees and statues. And this was a beauty that we sought to recreate at home in the great designs, the landscapes, designed, of course, in a leading way by Capability Brown. Here at Stowe, the first place he worked, and perhaps most famously at Stourhead. This constructed beauty, this perfection in the landscape created by man. But by the late 18th century, tastes were changing, and the tours of Gilpin and Repton and others were starting to talk about a beauty that was not created, but a beauty that was England's own. And in most cases, they were writing about England. Gilpin's tours of the New Forest, of the Lake District, where the beauty of the picturesque landscape, that which was created through the beauty of nature, gnarled trees, rutted tracks, decaying cottages with ivy delicately strewn, and led to the revival of the picturesque movement, something which people yearned for and raced out to see with their clawed glasses and their intense curiosity to see what had so delighted the writers. And then, as the Napoleonic Wars restricted continental travel, and the French Revolution made these not safe places to go. There was the discovery of England's own Arcadia, the extraordinary beauty of our own countryside, the lakes gone from this sublime and terrible landscape to one of the most loved. And of course, and the person who most opened our eyes to its beauty and was the most articulate speaker about its beauty was, was Wordsworth. And he drew out not only the sublime, sentimental and delightful aesthetic of nature, but its deeper moral resonance. So he wrote in 1798, in words written not far from here, lines above Tintern Abbey, to recognize in nature and the language of the sense the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my moral being. But Wordsworth was also the person who took us from the sublime appreciation of nature to a sense of the need for its defense. Because even as he was writing those words, his own beloved Lake District was coming under threat. And his in 1810 guide to the Lake District, he wrote about the first threats to that landscape. The villas, the suburban villas that the rich industrialists were constructing in its valleys, the ore extraction, the spiky larch, which he so hated. But of course, above all, the railway, the dreaded railway from Kendal to Windermere. And in 1844, his words, is then no nook of English ground secure from rash assault, triggered the first movement 
for the defense of beauty and drew together many of the great thinkers and writers around a belief that you had not only to love beauty, but to fight for beauty. Now, in fact, the worst assault was not the railway, but Manchester Corporation, who bought in 1877, the Thirlmere catchment. And this is perhaps the best evocation of the Lake District that Wordsworth knew. This is um, John Glover's picture of the 1820s, now in the Tate. And this landscape, this Thirlmere was the central lake, one of the most admired by poets and writers. Manchester Corporation acquired it to build a reservoir to supply the people of Manchester with the water they needed. And they did need that water. There was no question about it. But the sense of audacity in buying this catchment, drowning the valley, was a sense that was felt enormously deeply. And here we have a sense, you can see that, as in Glover's picture, Thelmay was really two lakes. These two lakes and this first this sense of drowning. Now, Thelmay today, we all know, is beautiful. We all go there and rave about it. But it was that first assault, that real sense of a public corporation coming in, not only drowning the valley, building a new road, now the A591, and then planting these wretched larch as well, because they built, planted millions of larch around the water, believing extraordinarily that broadleaf trees would pollute the water supply. Quite amazing. And this sense of the rash assault was not just this precious landscape, but perhaps even more scarily was the assault of industrialization on this beauty of the countryside that people had, in a sense, so recently come to appreciate. And this urbanization, the rash assault that really sparked off the fight for beauty, this Crookshank cartoon showing London going out of town, these bricks being tossed into the air, the hayricks quaking, the tenements decaying even as they are built, summed up the terrible conditions of urbanization, the squalor, the awful living conditions in which people had to suffer. Examples of the speed of urbanization in Sheffield between 1831 and 1836, 156 new streets were constructed. That intensity of the building and the complete lack of care about how it was done, the filthy skies, the chimneys pouring out, smoke and black and filth, and causing havoc with people's health. Out of this cacophony came perhaps the most important voice in the fight for beauty, John Ruskin. A sensitive child, a child who had the Bible read to him over and over again as a child, who had a, a cyanometer to measure the blue of the sky, who went touring to the Alps and whose epiphany in the discovery of beauty changed his life, his everything he wrote about, was about the importance of beauty to society. He became the Slade Professor of Art at Oxford University, and there was one extraordinary moment where he's described by a student, the young A.E. Hausman, in fact, the only record we have of him holding up uh, a picture of Leicester Abbey and scrawling over it a chimney, an enormous um, cacophony of, of bricks and smoke and bright red flame, and saying this, this is what we are doing to the beauty of our landscape. He then, in later life, set up a guild for the pursuit of beauty, a guild which still survives today. But Ruskin was anti-urban. He was anti the mechanicals. He wanted people to live good and ordered lives. 
and perhaps he was a bit of a tyrant in that respect. But he inspired many, many others. He gave lectures up and down the country with thousands of people queuing to hear his voice and to hear his passion for beauty. His protégés were themselves vital in the fight for beauty. Octavia Hill, who as a young woman borrowed money from Ruskin to build her own little terraced houses and to find decent housing for people. She too was appalled by the squalor in which so many people lived. And she bought these little houses. Now, they're named Paradise Place. Well, they are a paradise today, but they were not a paradise when she bought them in order to give people a decent home, decent living conditions, and to bring beauty into people's lives. She memorably used to walk the ragged children of the school where she taught out of London into Epping Forest, a journey of about 10 miles on a Sunday morning, the only day when these children had any free time because she believed it was so important that they felt green grass beneath their feet, smelled clean air, picked flowers, and connected with the beauty of nature. She said, the need of quiet, the need of air, the need of exercise, the sight of sky and of things growing seem human needs common to all. Her belief in beauty was such that she and her sister Miranda founded the Curl Society for the diffusion of beauty, to bring beauty into poor people's lives, painting murals on village halls, bringing flowers and putting gardens into the worst parts of the inner city. She campaigned for open-air sitting rooms for the poor, believing that everybody needed a little bit of green space that they could get access to in these awful urban areas. And she memorably tried to save, and did save, um, many of the open spaces of London, but was defeated time and time again by the greed of the builders. She bought, or, or thought she'd bought, land around Swiss Cottage to protect the fields forever but she was thwarted by a developer who let her down and then built on Swiss cottage fields. No fields there today, as you know. But she, with her partners, um, Canon Hardwick Rawnsley and Robert Hunter, who is the lawyer from the Open Spaces Society, went on very much with a Ruskinian vision in mind to found the largest organization in the world which has a, a passion for beauty, the National Trust. And indeed, it was them who influenced the very first planning legislation in the 1909 Planning Bill, which sought to secure the home healthy, the house beautiful, the town pleasant, the city dignified, and the suburb salubrious. So beauty was becoming recognized in policy, recognized as something that people needed for a civilized life, something which was central to everybody. It was a universal motivator. The love of our beautiful countryside sent the First World War poets going into battle, writing lyrically of the beauty of England for which they were fighting, clutching copies of A.E. Hausmann's A Shropshire Lad into the terrors of the Somme. And they, when they finished the war, they were promised something special. The Liberal government promised them a land fit for heroes, homes fit for heroes, in honour of the enormous sacrifice that was made. But of course, as we all know, they, they came back to a shattered society and a shattered economy, where the government failed to provide those things and failed to deliver on the urgent needs and failed to protect the beauty that they had fought for. Into the vacuum came the jerry builders. There was the beginnings of control in the middle of urban areas, according to that planning bill I, I quoted from, 
but there was no control at all in the countryside. The speculators ran riot, constructing alongside the roads a ribbon development. The sprawl was unstoppable. And out of that came a new breed of fighters for beauty. These were the architect planners, people like Patrick Abercrombie, Clough Williams Ellis, who wrote this book, England and the Octopus. This was the tentacles of the octopus sneaking out from London, consuming everything in their grasp with no possibility of any kind of strategic control or protection of the countryside that was being ruined. And indeed, J.B. Priestley, who wrote very evocatively about this, described the 1920s and 1930s despoilation as so much worse than the terrible industrialization of the previous century, because at least he said that had been confined to a few places, where this is threatening to destroy the entire countryside around London and the major cities. Now, these planners were not anti-urban, as Ruskin had been. These were people who wanted to create a better society, but were appalled by the lack of control over development in the countryside. One GM Trevelyan, Regis Professor of History at Cambridge University, wrote a polemical pamphlet, Must England's Beauty Perish, he wrote, to which their answer, not just by his friends, but by governments, by many people in society, was no, England's beauty must not perish. It was the trigger for a new commitment, the beginnings of a new commitment to protect beauty. Because there was a universal dislike of sprawl. It wasn't just an aesthetic concern. It was wasteful of land. It was felt to be dangerous. It was felt to be you know, destroying many of the things that made England special. And that universal love of the countryside actually began as a result to get new legislation, 1930s planning, starting to come through. And then again, a war. A war in which, once again, the beauty of the countryside was used to inspire the troops. These famous posters by Frank Newbold, this whole sort of sense of your Britain, fight for it now, evoking the kind of incredible beauty of a countryside that even as those posters were painted was being challenged by sporadic development, urban sprawl, but still had the power to inspire the troops as they went into war. But this time, it was different. This time, those in power were determined that there would not be a repeat of the disaster of the First World War. There would be a new commitment to a Britain for everyone, a Britain in which the material needs of society would be met, but so would the non-material needs. And Churchill, even as the war was kicked off in 1940, was commissioning reports, beverage on social security, Barlow on industrialization, Uthwatt on land and planning and compensation, and Scott on the future of rural areas, setting up a post-war reconstruction committee that would bring together all the interests concerned with planning for a better future after the war. And the cross-dimensional, cross-disciplinary nature of that committee was pulling together legislation on health, on education, on housing, on jobs, on industrial policy, and on beauty, and the beauty of the landscape, protecting nature, public access to the countryside. And this package was all being developed even as the war was being fought. But of course, it wasn't Churchill who came into power after the war, much to his surprise as anyone else's. It was Attlee. 
And that cabinet drew, however, heavily on all the work that had been done. They put together this integrated package of legislation, a package which was specifically designed to meet people's needs in all dimensions, material needs, non-material needs, spiritual needs, needs for people's health and well-being. So we had the Education Act, we had the establishment of the NHS, social security and welfare, new housing commitments, and of course the Great Act which established the national parks. And here we have the first national park kinder scout in the Peak District where that great mass trespass had taken place in the 1930s. Uh, access to the countryside through the Pennine Way and nature protection legislation for the first time in the 1949 Act. And it was seen as very much part of this package. John Silkin, who was introducing that Act, said, the enjoyment of our leisure and the ability to leave our towns and walk without fear of interruption are just as much a part of positive health and well-being as the building of hospitals or insurance against sickness. So these things were seen in a totally joined up and integrated way. And the beauty of the countryside was seen as a way of giving people a sense of optimism and well-being for the future. This was about harmony, about balance. And absolutely fascinatingly, it was also about land. A 1944 white paper, for the first time ever, spoke of the importance of land and actually sharing land use and being clear about, as a small country with very intense pressures, land, in a way, is the key to harmonization. Places for people to live, places for people to walk, places to build hospitals, places to build roads. These tensions were anticipated and provided for the ambition for harmonization after the war. Also, the most far-reaching planning legislation anywhere in the world was passed in the 1947 Act, Town and Country Planning, where the introduction of green belts, this is Sheffield's green belt, belts which would contain urban sprawl, stop that pre-war phenomenon, but also allow for cities to work and function within a defined area and not just connect to each other. And of course, there was also the urgent need for housing. And this was a government that was determined to meet people's needs. And although we may have views about how successful it all was, here the new towns from the 1940s onwards, this is Stevenage, were a very conscious attempt to build beautiful surroundings for people with green spaces, with trees, with um, harmony in land use, but also harmony in the living environment. This was an objective that was central to public policy. Now, maybe none of that was perfect, but it was a definite attempt to build in beauty and to recognize its importance. And that ambition for harmony actually lingered on for much of the second half of the 20th century. But there were things that had not been foreseen by the great post-war reconstruction movement. And so there needed to be new fights for beauty around unexpected developments. And perhaps the most dramatic change came about in farming. This was so unanticipated. Back in uh, the early 1940s, the Scott Report had said there will not be a tension between farming and beauty. Farming created the landscape, created the beauty of the landscape. And of course, back in the 1950s, you know, the sense of agriculture as a, a kind of charming, um, but also a working environment, but one which posed no threat, 
was very quickly taken over by the rapid intensification of farming that followed, pouring in money quite deliberately under the 1947 Agriculture Act to improve production, to, to, to rid us of all those pressures of rationing and the worries that people had experienced in the war of a lack of food. Uh, ramping up production, but it had severe consequences because in the race for production, we lost 97% of our hay meadows between uh, 1945 and 1984, 27% of the heather moorland of our hills between 1947 and 1980, and 21% of hedgerows between 1984 and 90 alone. That, that sense of dramatic change of our countryside. And by the 1980s, when I arrived on the scene as a young campaigner working for the Council for National Parks, the fight for the future of the countryside was perhaps at its height. Improvement, industrialization of agriculture, the ramping up production against the need for nature and beauty. And there were many fights, which my book describes, about trying to pull back some of the intensity of farming, not to say it's either farming or nature, or either farming and the landscape, but to build in a lower intensity production, but which provided for the beauty of nature and for, for the revival of hay meadows, and against a background of enormous loss. And we were getting somewhere. In the early 1990s, the government responded with the establishment of environmentally sensitive areas, policies which built in the need for farmers to be encouraged to farm in ways that did sustain the beauty of the landscape, nature, the cultural heritage. The protection of some of our national parks whose moorland was being ploughed out was gradually won back, and there emerged a stronger consensus about the need for farming to balance uh, that word harmony and balance again, production and the protection of nature and beauty. And of course, we all know that when we get it right, farming is both the creator of beauty and also the supplier of the food we so urgently need. But as we've gone into the 21st century, the fights have been revived again about productive agriculture the pressures for food security, the concerns about a lack of food in the system when in fact we have food but we just don't distribute it well, are reviving again. And we're waiting for the government to publish a 25-year vision for food and farming in which we are told the ambition will be to increase production again. So we're losing uh, some of those benefits which we worked so hard to create. And there have been so many other fights about beauty in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, we saw the big fight about trees. Trees in the wrong place can cause all kinds of problems, particularly conifer planting in the uplands. Began again in the Lake District back in the very early 20th century. Trees in the right place, however, provide such an extraordinary, not only function, but beauty and experience for us all. And we've learned a great deal about how to plant the right trees in the right place. The uh, National Forest in the Midlands is a good example. So is the uh, community forests around our cities and trees. And many of you here will have seen the Woodland Trust stand and the wonderful work that they're doing. But we had to fight for that. We had to fight for the protection of our coast when again, poor planning controls um, threatened back in the 60s and 70s and the mass expansion of coastal tourism. And yet, uh, the fight has resulted now, particularly not least through the National Trust's Enterprise Neptune, as us having one of the most beautiful protected coasts in the world. 
and the fight to protect our cultural heritage, which, despite, again, the existence of the National Trust and despite um, those excellent post-war policies, uh, still the need to identify the, the value our cultural heritage uh, brings to us. And the tools that we did put in place didn't all work um, as envisaged. And we saw some terrible disasters back in the 50s and 60s as urbanization kind of in its new form and the recreation, the bulldozing often of war-damaged city centers uh, created a new threat, if you like, to, 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 to beauty through the way that we just built without any consideration of aesthetics. And, of course, some of the new infrastructure, the fights of the 1980s and 90s, particularly about roads, about motorways, um, ploughing through beautiful and protected parts of the countryside. Few of us will forget Swampy and his tree and the kind of fights we had to fight against. But again, up to about the end of the 20th century, the government would listen to arguments about harmony, would listen to arguments about beauty being a necessary part of the judgment. I think... What has really concerned me is watching how we've gone from a world where we were able to think about beauty in this way as something that really mattered to a world where, frankly, only the economy counts. And so I found a word which I, I deliberately seized on, a horrible word, a word economism, to describe this kind of overwhelming focus on the economy. And I found an American economist of the 1950s having written these words, which just struck me as so apt. Economism, he said, is that which can build a society which is rich, prosperous, and powerful, even one which has a reasonably wide diffusion of material well-being. But it cannot build one that is lovely, one which has savour and depth, and which exercises the irresistible power of attraction that loveliness wields. And I thought then, he's, he's onto something. This is, the, this is the fear. This is the worry today, that the economy is the only thing that matters. And some of the fights of the early 20th century seemed absolutely to show that. The first shocking one was when the government proposed to sell off our forests in 2010, we'd always known that there was pressure for privatization of some of our public forests. What we had not anticipated in any way was that the government would sell off, propose to sell off all of our forests, including the great hunting forest, the Forest of Dean, the New Forest, the places which felt as if they were kind of part of the very spiritual essence of this country. There was the most enormous outcry. And actually, the government did the fastest U-turn I have ever seen. Stay, uh, there was a moment where Ed Miliband, as Labour leader, stood up in the House of Commons and said, does the Prime Minister believe that his policy to sell the forests of England is the right one? The Prime Minister, to everyone's surprise, said no and sat down. And it was over. It was over. It was, as I say, the fastest U-turn. But the fact that it was even proposed was shocking to people. Another big campaign was the fight over planning in 2011. And here, again, the rule of economism seemed to be the dominant force because it was simply based on the seeing planning, that great carefully put in place tool uh, of the 1940s as an obstacle to growth. That was all the government could see. In fact, the words in the consultation paper said, the default answer to a planning application should be yes. And that just 
rode roughshod over all the careful harmonization that the planning system had tried to create. The idea that you could allow, encourage development in the right places, but you could also say no if it would cause harm to other public interests. And so there was again an enormous response, an enormous and concerned public response. And the National Trust, perhaps surprisingly to some people, but we felt it was kind of deep in our bones, you know, stood up as loud as anybody to object to it. This was a, a petition that we launched at all of our properties, every single one. And we'd never done that before. I, as Director General, wrote to every member. I was expecting some kickback. I was expecting people to say, you shouldn't be campaigning on this. You shouldn't be you know, getting engaged with, with the government. You shouldn't be challenging. But actually, I had universal support. I can remember the handful of critics um, among our own constituency. Of course, the critics from the government side were very vocal. And what was absolutely extraordinary was the way that this became a huge public debate about the very, very essence of our country and what we were trying to do. And again, the government was forced into listening and the consultation paper, the really offensive words were taken out and the kind of sense of a change in direction was signalled. But actually, three years on, I hate to say it, but my colleagues uh, in the CPRE and other organisations are saying that threat to stop the planning system being that balancing act and to make it you know, focus on enabling development almost regardless of impact is still a threat. The economism still reigns. And I think here particularly, it is frustrating because we, we can plan well. You know, we can build new houses that are beautiful and sustainable. This is a, a rural example in rural Gloucestershire. Uh, these houses are in central Cambridge, have won every award for, for sustainability and indeed for architecture. We can use planning to create beauty and to create good things, but not if it's simply seen as a, a, a frustration of growth, which is the way that so often the government describes it. And so we have those fights are going on with a renewed intensity. It is often all about the economy. The only thing that seems to matter is GDP. And GDP only measures income and expenditure. It does not have a balance sheet. It does not look at the basic resources, the health of our soil, the health of our natural resources, whether we're using resources sustainably. And indeed, we know we're not. We're still using the world's resources as if we had three planets to depend on, not one. And with climate change and all the other pressures, GDP is not a fit-for-purpose measure. And yet, it's the one you always hear about. We, even through this referendum debate, all we have really heard about so often is, are we going to be better off or worse off? Not about the fundamental values. And this sense of kind of an overriding dependence on the economy is shaping our world and shaping it for the worse. It's not enough to think about the economy. We need prosperity, we need well-being, we need all the things that were recognized um, at the turn of the last century and indeed in that great post-war reconstruction period. But we also need to be happy and we need to live sustainable lives. We can't have it all. And even more, I think we have to think hard about the kind of society that we're creating for the future. Remember Octavia Hill and those ragged children? And we all think we're so much more prosperous today. We've sorted out all those problems of deep poverty and deep deprivation. 
Well, we have to a degree. We still experience poverty. We still have problems. But actually, there's something else we're missing. And children today, you might think they have everything they need, but they do not, many of them, have access to nature or not enough access to nature. Children today spend between six and seven hours in front of gadgets like this. A third of children today are overweight. Two-thirds of them have less space to run about in than free-range hens. 90% of the area over which we used to uh, let our children roam has shrunk down. So we've lost, sorry, lost the area over which we let our children roam free by 90% in a single generation. And a child today is three times more likely to go to hospital for falling out of bed than falling out of a tree. Now, we don't want children to fall out of trees. This is not about sending our children up trees. But it is about saying, what kind of childhood do we want? What kind of experience do we want our children to have? And David Attenborough so wisely said, no one will protect what they do not first love. So if we're not bringing up our children to love nature, to experience the beauty of nature, we are exposing future generations to even greater risks than we have suffered. We have to do things differently. And the campaign which perhaps I'm most proud of from the National Trust was this one, 50 things to do before you're 11 and 3 quarters. And it didn't matter what the 50 things were, it was all about children running free, getting muddy, muddy knees, kind of experiencing nature, taking risks in a, in a way that helped them to learn about how you know, they themselves can kind of control their movements and their bodies. And it brought enormous joy. It still is. It's one of the most successful campaigns the Trust has ever run. But what it reminds us of is that fundamental need that we all have to be close to nature if we're going to learn to respect it, to be close to beauty, to use beauty as an argument which actually shapes public policy, helps us find the kinds of solutions that we need if we're going to face the future with any kind of confidence. If we don't listen to beauty, if we don't listen to our hearts and listen to the way in which we as humans need spiritual succor as well as material things, we are heading on a course that will only lead to disaster. We have to find a way to bring beauty back to the centre of policy, not as a sort of trade-off, but just as a way of looking at the world, of building in the things that matter that money can't buy, the things that make us, as a society, believe that we have a better future ahead of us and believe that we, as a society, can take charge of our destiny in a way that is responsible and responsive to human need and human love, as well as to the economy and the things, of course, that we need in a practical sense. So my book is about the fight for beauty. It's telling that story, it's telling the story, the historical story, but it's also unashamedly calling for us all to talk about beauty again, calling on politicians to re-engage with beauty, to stop dismissing it as something of sentimental and rather embarrassing kind of irrelevance. Bring it back to the centre of policy and help us find a better future. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Um, any questions? I think we've got some mics. Yeah, thank you. You mentioned about beauty. I think beauty is a very difficult term to define. If you ask anybody in this room... You hold the mic a bit closer to your face. If friend. you ask anybody in this room what beauty is, mm. I think we would come up with a lot of different variations. And you talk about eco sort of spec and, and nature, which is obviously one aspect of it. But I feel that it's important to actually define beauty in visual terms so that it, it, there's a clear definition of it and to try and incorporate many people's views and not just you know, a few privileged people. Um, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, could I just mention mm. a, a couple of points? I mean, that's one, one point. And the other point, point is that many of us are fortunate to live in very beautiful areas, but many of them have been spoiled by development and are under pressure for development now. Mm. How do we manage that development so it doesn't spoil... You know, I often think that the generalised planning terms aren't adequate and that often new development is, it, is proposed in a manner which is the same throughout the country mm. and doesn't think about local identity and to preserve that identity. Um, and my final point <laughs> is that... Um, Three, I, mean, I have to remember them. <laughs> Come on, quick, yeah, third one. How do we raise people's awareness of good design and beauty? Okay, three good questions. All right. So first one, you know, we should define beauty. Well, I'm not going to define beauty because actually my profound belief, and this is borne out by some academic work that was done both by the Commission on the, for Architecture and the Built Environment and also a, a think tank called Res, Res Publica, who'd, who've done big surveys of people of all classes, backgrounds, racial backgrounds or whatever. And what they discovered is that actually there is remarkable unanimity about what people, people find beautiful. You know, there might be small differences between individuals, but actually overall, remarkable unanimity. People love cities when they are clean, well-designed, where there's clearly been some thought put into architecture. They hate cities which are run down, abandoned, you know, don't look loved, where actually the, the, the quality of the, of, of the building is poor and they, they don't look as if anybody cares about them. Similarly, the countryside. And actually, the same principles apply. People, people love places that look and feel loved. So that's the first thing. The second thing is actually I'm deliberately using beauty, and I know it's controversial, to embrace not just the aesthetic, you know, what, what, what something looks like, but literally a sort of what warms our heart, you know, what makes us feel better. Because I think actually that's how Ruskin and others use beauty. It wasn't a narrow thing. It was a deeply moral and kind of philosophical view. And I think that that's the bit we're missing. I'm not just calling for an aesthetic. I'm calling for a, a, a change in our priorities and the way we look at the world. On your second question, what about the future? Well, you know, as you will have gathered, I'm a big fan of planning because actually I think we've got to plan our way to a better future. Our cities could cope with far more development than they've currently got. I mean, Richard Rogers talks about being able to meet the entire development needs in housing of a large part of the southeast just by reshaping London's high streets and urban regeneration. That's, I say just, I mean, it's a, it's a big ask. But we are very wasteful of land still. We are very wasteful. We let places that could accommodate development become run down and um, degraded. And similarly, you know, there will be places in the countryside that, which will be good places for development, but you can't just decide them on a whim. We need good planning. And the thing that worries me most, actually, is the government's abandonment of planning as a, as a framework. And your final question was... I've forgotten. That's why you shouldn't do three, actually. I can't remember. 
Raise awareness. Well, you know, that's why I'm doing my fight for beauty. I think we just want to talk about it. I want to get government ministers talking about it. I've written to them all. Um, I heard the other day that Liz Trust said um, she's doing not only a 25-year plan for farming, she's doing a 25-year plan for nature. And, so, and she, I heard her say, one of the civil servants told me, she said, oh, we'd better put beauty in, hadn't we? <laughs> I thought, yes, you know, this is good. So it's just we need to talk about it. Don't be embarrassed. Don't, don't use these eco-speak words. Use beauty and be proud of it. Now, lots of other questions, so perhaps just one each from now on. Uh, one here, and then there's one in the middle. Yeah. First of all, Fiona, thank you. Um, to hear you say what you say today is just music to my ears. Oh, thank you. But I'd like to say, I'd like to ask the audience something rather than yourself. Absolutely. Over the next year, can we all do one thing that actually encompasses a fight for beauty? Great thought. Thank you. Um, one in the middle there. Uh, do you want to quickly get the microphone and then we'll go to the person behind you? Yes, sorry. Are you working with um, people like other conservationists or are you doing it with, by yourself with a small group? Well, the book is mine and mine alone. And so, you know, any brickbats that get thrown at it get thrown at me, which is fine, because I'm quite used to brickbats, actually, so I'm not worried about that. But what's been lovely is how the conservation organisations, the ones I used to work for, and also some of the others, are all seem to be very excited about this, because they all recognise that, as I say, I'm not, I'm not trying to say beauty is more important than nature or different from other things. I'm, and what I'm saying is this is a way of raising the profile of the things that we, we, we just don't talk about enough because we're not giving enough weight to our long-term future and to the quality of our lives. And so I hope that, you know, it's not that I'm running a campaign and I want 60,000 people signed up or something. I just want everyone to talk about beauty. So perhaps that goes back to the previous suggestion. If we all do something, the world will be a better place. Thank you. There was a question immediately behind you as well. Picking up that thread of consensus that mm. has been raised in front of me, Inspiring as ever, Fiona, and, and great that you're looking for the consensus. Um, but those 1947, the wonderful legislation, came in because it was the Labour government. There was then the consensus through, um, the year, through the good years. And of course you put up a poster saying, in 2010, this happened. And then the, the, the approach to poorly planned expansion came. And it comes under a particular thread of miserable... Econo econometric conservatism. Uh, the, I'm the, not, no, no, not no, going to fall for that, Malcolm. Okay, okay. <laughs> but let, let, me, let me put the question. Yeah. So we just have the brand new planning act yeah. about to battle its way onto the yeah. statute. The present government has resisted sensible amendment after sensible amendment. It's bounced loads of things back to the House of Lords um, that they put in of small things, stopping off the selling of the last social housing, trying to protect green belts, and most of all, the privatisation clause but the planning system can be privatised now by this government and this Act. What should have been in the new Planning Act rather than what is in the Planning Act? Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, lively as ever. Thank you. I'm not going to buy the idea this is about one party or the other. I'm really not. I went to some pains and I, went, I read loads and loads of the literature of that preparation. Attlee had a package ready to pick up. Now, he picked it up, and I'm sure he did it in a particular way because he was the Labour government rather than a Conservative. Of course, there was an element of that. But all of that legislation actually had been 
got ready by the post-war reconstruction committee chaired by John Reith actually for a number of years um, during the war and it was a party political consensus and I think that's to me that's its strength and that's why it actually in many ways has endured it hasn't completely as to the future and you know I, I've shared my worries about planning and I'm, I, I'm with you in the sense that I don't think we're there yet but actually um, I do believe that a new planning bill if I was to write one would be about sustainable cities about protecting the countryside, about the priorities um, and how we find the right places for new housing and infrastructure. And that's about, again, it's about integration. You know, we've got an HS2 that has just been plonked on the countryside that should have been planned properly, along with objectives for how the settlements through which it passes will grow. We know we don't do this well, so my pitch for a new planning bill would be to revive the status of planning make it better and stronger, but also make it very clear it's not anti-development, it's about how and where good development that we need should go. Now, there's a lady over here. Oh, sorry. Yes, I'll come back, come back to you, sorry. Oh, this lady's been trying to get my attention. <laughs> um, slightly different area. Um, the government has talked about indices of well-being, mm. uh, mental health, etc. Is there any research you're aware of um, about the link between access to beautiful countryside and increased mental health? There is lots of work on it, indeed, and quite a lot is quoted in my book um, about the benefits of access to green spaces in particular, particularly in and close to urban areas. So Octavia Hill was absolutely right. Um, a lot of um, benefits of exercise, and not just exercise in gyms, but you know, exercise in the open spaces bring mental well-being benefits as well as physical well-being. So I don't think we're short of any evidence at all. I think the thing that I'm sad about is because, you know, a number of people, eminent economists, have proposed new measures, um, a well-being index, you know, the Bhutan happiness index we've all heard about. And actually, there are people doing that, and there is working government of phoning up people and saying, are you happier today than you were a year ago or whatever? But it counts for nothing in policymaking. It's completely invisible. So, you know, my point is that, in a way, there's quite a lot bubbling away, good evidence available, people doing good work, but it just would take people saying, let's give this more weight and more authority. We could actually move forward quite fast. That, that's, in a way, both the frustration and the opportunity. Uh, the gentleman there, I don't know if he's got his... Um, there, he had it for a moment and I snatched it away from him, sorry. I think that uh, what's so frustrating is very simple things could be done to enhance beauty with, with regard to agricultural intensification, mm. which is a real problem in Herefordshire. If we just had wildlife hedgerows mandated around or through one wildlife hedgerow, either on the perimeter of or through each farm, that would in improve wildlife and beauty no end. And it's a simple thing to do. It's just frustrating to me that uh, that doesn't happen. So it's a comment, really. Well, it's a comment, but it's a comment that has a lot of resonance with what I was saying, because actually we were getting, until um, the recent uh, common agricultural re policy reform, we were getting some quite sophisticated uh, policies and money going into wildlife-friendly farming. And we do seem to be pulling away from that now. And I think, you know, farmers are always saying they don't want red tape, they don't want more interference. But actually, this is public money for public good. And again, it's, there are things we can do. And when you look at the statistics about soil erosion, about the damage we're doing, I mean, people say, and I don't quote this figure in my book because I couldn't verify it, but people say we've got 60 harvests left. 
We're causing so much damage to the quality of our soils through over-farming that we are at real risk. Now, you know, technology and other things may help us respond, but if you look at what's happened to the peat, you know, both in the fens and in the uplands, we've done some terrible things. So farming does need to get on a more sustainable footing, including, of course, wildlife. Yeah, great, great idea. Now, who's next? Um, one up there and one down here, please. Thank you, Fiona, for a great talk, very thought-provoking. Um, I think your talk of drowning valleys will have been resonant for many of us here in mm. Wales, the famous example mm. being um, uh, the drowning of the Trewerin Valley by the Liverpool Corporation mm. um, and the loss not only of the landscape but of the irreplaceable and precious heritage of uh, the Welsh language community of Capel Kellyn that was dispersed. Fifty years on, uh, the government has passed a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act which places us in a good position to look for these harmonies and so forth. Um, what advice do you have for ministers and for those of us who are advising ministers on the balance when it comes particularly to wind farms? Um, we have these wind farms, um, you know, they are seeking to balance the, uh, the, the, the requirements of the, sustain, the sustainability goals of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act with the undeniable impact on the landscape. Great question, Manon, thank you. And actually, I, I, I may not have said it, but when I talk about the drowning of Thelmere, I do say, actually, often, and I'm not sure I did this time, that Karen hardwick Rawnsley, who was the person who took on the mantle of the Defender of the Lakes after Wordsworth, he actually knew that there was a moral issue there and the people of Manchester did need water. It could have been done so much better, but actually, I, I suppose I'm just trying to remind us that, you know, sometimes things do get damaged, but it's... You can, you can always do things better and more beautifully. And that applies to wind farms too. Um, I mean, I obviously had to tackle that one really head on because, you know, it's easy to say, oh, the conservationists that care about landscape are dead against wind farms and the conservationists that care about green energy are madly pro-wind farms and, and we're on different sides. I don't think that's right and I don't think it's necessary because I believe that we do need to shift off coal and we do need to move to more sustainable forms of energy and that wind is one of the ways we need to do it. But again, if we just talked about how can we do it really beautifully, I think we'd get a different solution from the ones we often get. Um, you know, there are lots of other things we need to do as well which are less... Um, provocative, so you know, energy conservation is the no regrets. Um, harnessing the power of the sea can be done in a, in a, a very beautiful way. So can um, hydro and uh, ground source heat pumps and all of those things. But actually, we will need some wind. But I've seen and say in the book, you know, talk about turbines on the northeast coast, Blythe, and on the west coast of Cumbria, which in industrial landscapes look fantastic. But we don't, you know, beauty's just. It's only seen as a, a sort of, in a way, it's only invoked by the antis. And I want to invoke it to find the right places for wind farms. And I think there are. I wouldn't myself want them across all our national parks, but I would find places quite happily where we can accommodate them and we need to do it. Uh, and I did... Oh, yes, the lady here. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the common agricultural policy briefly. Mm. Um, and I wondered if you could say a bit about what you think the EU has done for mm. beauty and what might be the risks and benefits of leaving or staying yeah. in? Just to be really clear, I'm very pro staying in personally, personal view, um, for two reasons. One is that actually, if you look at the track record, our environment is in a much better shape because of being a member of the EU. Back in the 1980s, particularly when I was sort of a baby campaigner, 
uh, all the legislation about clean air, clean water, better protection um, for the environment all came from the EU and came faster and better than I'm sure our country would have done it. And even though the common agricultural policy, you're right, you know, caused enormous problems, it was only doing, we adopted it and influenced it to follow up what we had instituted after the war here. So it wasn't doing anything different to that which we had done. And, you know, having lobbied the EU personally in, back in particularly the 80s and 90s, they listened to wanting to get it right. They listened, and all the environmentally sensitive areas, all the sort of better policies of the environment came from Europe too. So I believe it's possible, you know, to, to reconcile those tensions. I don't think it's necessary that we have a fight about beauty and farming, but we are because economism prevails, not because the common agricultural policy is uh, a terrible thing. So I think there are definitely arguments. My other one is just I'm a... As you've heard, I talk about harmony, I talk about working together, you know, so there's a kind of moral argument for me as well, but that, these are personal views, yeah. Yes, at the back there, or halfway back. Thank you. Um, I just wondered if you would think um, in terms of reusing loads and loads of buildings, they could be in cities, they could be out in the countryside, that have all got individual facades, Victorian, Edwardian, mm. around here we've got 17th and 18th century facades. I know it takes a bit of work, but they're using local materials, their vernacular architecture, um, and in actual fact it would stop these great developers coming in and putting up you know, the same square box with the same funny coloured bricks that don't belong in our area and all that kind of thing. Is that not a form of beauty? It is, it is. And, um, you know, if, if, if you know, you know, my passion for Hoskins and the kind of making of the English landscape, I'm, I love the fact that, you know, you can turn up in Herefordshire and know you're in Herefordshire because of the colour of the stone and the building style and all the rest of it. And we're losing that very, very fast. Um, Richard Rogers' great belief in London is that you revive every high street in London, as I said, with the existing architecture, but just, you know, redevelop and, re and improve, build houses on the, above shops, you know, live, get people living above, uh, you know, and, and this sort of vision of a, of a livable city in which you don't have to drive because you can walk to work or you can get fantastic transport or you and your kids can go to a park nearby and there's a doctor's surgery and there's places where you can shop locally you know we for years and this is a criticism of planning you know we planned as if everything was done separately you know housing estates with no shops and no community facilities on them um, you know, areas given us just over to retail or just over to commerce. We, that's all out of date now. You know, we need to build in an integrated way where people can live their lives and more sustainably in an accessible way. And our urban areas are the place we have to invest a lot in that. Not only can we accommodate more people, we can accommodate more people with a better quality of life and more beautifully uh, than, than we have done in the past. So I completely agree with you. Anyone else? I think we've got like time for one more at the back there. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was really good. Um, as a campaigner, um, would you consider local government as a target for campaigning? Mm. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I've talked a lot about national government because I did spend a lot of my life campaigning on national issues, but local government make the decisions about planning and sometimes they're not good. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, through lack of hearing the voice of the local community. And so in a way, you know, part of this 
vision I have about everybody talking about beauty is just if it gets on the agenda of the local authority and they, they hear, that, hear people clamouring for beautiful solutions, that things they don't like not to happen, but things they do like to happen, I think, I think the world will be a better place. So definitely local is, is good, yeah. I think my time is up. But thank you very much indeed. Thanks for coming. <laughs> thank you.